everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Connor Westgate, a postdoctoral fellow at the Danish Headache Center at the University of Copenhagen, who recently joined us for a webinar where he shares his research involving intracranial pressure measurements and the importance of understanding this physiological parameter for maintaining normal central nervous system function. Let's dive in. The very first question that we have here is from Frank. This question is, how have you avoided CNS infections? We have avoided it by using clean surgical technique. We have never had any issues with CNS infections. But it's probably also part of how we uh, make sure the pressure probe doesn't move um, in the rats. So, of course, we drill a borehole to allow the pressure tips go inside the rats. We put um, some gel foam on top of that, then we put a mesh on top of that, and then some dental cements. But otherwise, it's just clean surgical technique. And we've never had a rat go because of CNS infection, and we've never seen any evidence of that. Okay, fantastic. And are you giving them um, post-op antibiotics? We, we do, yes. Can't remember the exact antibiotic we use, but we do give antibiotics. But I think it is more good surgical technique rather than the antibiotics that's mm-hmm. doing this. Because we know if the sign gets into the CNS, it's going to grow regardless of what drugs you give an animal. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, thank you. All right. The next question here is what is the effect of the head down tilt on the intracranial pressure of rats and humans? So heads down tilt in the rats increases intracranial pressure because you then have the first shower flexion at the neck, which will, of course, put some increased manually increase the pressure, but also you'll then have the effects of gravity pulling down on the CSF column. And in humans, although I've not seen any sort of data on this, I'd assume a simple flexion of the neck would increase into cranial pressure just because of the mechanical forces involved. But I don't have any data currently to back that up. Okay, thank you. All right, the next question that we have here is what is the effect of acetazolamide on intracranial pressure at lower doses? So they've suggested a specific dose here, 125 milligrams BD or 250 milligrams BD in humans. In our longest study, of course, we gave the lowest equivalent we gave was equivalent of one gram because of course in that chronic study we gave them the drugs twice a day and we could see even at that equivalent of one gram the icp is reduced but i can't comment further than that you know how low can we go to get pressure down but i'd say acetazolamide is a lot more variable in its response compared to to pyramate at least in this study but i can't we didn't try any lower than that so we wanted to go for what the IH patients would get. Therefore, that's why we chose the particular doses. Okay, great. 
All right, we have another question here. This is methods-based question. Are you mm -hmm. able to remove the dental cement and reuse the implants or sensors on multiple rats? And if so, can you explain how? Yes, so we regularly reuse the implants. So it's more of a dental putty, I would guess. It's soft rather than solid. So because of the way we affix everything into the rats, you can just pop off the um, dental cement slash putty, just pull off all the other bits and pieces, and you can literally just pull the um, cemeter tip out. And all we have to do is, you know, is remove some of the glue that we use and then clean it. Of course, making sure you keep the catheter intact and keep the cemeter the, the, um, body attached as well. We get multiple uses from these. So, um, of course, depends on how well you handle them and how often and how long you implant them for. But we've had telemeters which we've used five to six times and they're still running really well. But they are readily reusable and which is why I think they're really good. You can, you know, use them for multiple studies rather than some other things that I wish, yeah, aren't so reusable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. That's fantastic. Thanks for that. Another question here. This one's long, so okay. I'm going to maybe paraphrase it a little bit. Are you aware of the clinical meaningfulness slash translation of the RNFL changes in the DIO rats? Okay, so we know that in obese individuals, you do get a slight increased thickening of the retinal nerve fiber layer particularly in the context of IH patients, you get this papilledema, which is in effect a swelling of the retinal nerve fiber layer. And so far as you know what that would mean clinically, if you have a swelling in a nerve, the nerves of course not behaving properly. So it puts at a risk of degeneration and functional malfunction, which of course, when it comes to the retina, that's an issue for humans because we are a visual animal. So anything which can damage the retina can effectively damage our main sense and way of interacting with the world. But what we see there is equivalent to what we see in patients. And we are conducting further studies to actually gain a functional readout of this as well. Great. And then I guess the second part of that, which you may have already answered is, is it representative of intracranial pressure changes or is it just obesity-related changes that are, are causing that? Yes, so we know that papilledema is a symptom slash sign of any increase in intracranial pressure. So an individual might end up getting a uh, diagnosis of a brain tumor because they've been to see their optician. They said, oh, you've got this um, papilledema, you need to go to the emergency department. They get seen, they have a brain scan, it's like, oh dear, you have a brain tumour. So it's quite a common finding of raised intracranial pressure. So it's not just an obesity-related finding. We believe it's a, certainly in higher pressures, it is a pressure-related finding rather than a specific obesity finding. Okay, great. And then we've got another question here, which is sort of related. Are the RNFL changes correlated with pressure in the animals that you worked with? Yes, so we presented that data. There is a strong positive correlation between RNFL thickness and intracranial pressure. 
which is uh, we found that interesting actually because clinically we don't actually see that really, but we we found it in the rodents. Yeah, which surprised us, but it was yeah nice to see, especially with what are more objective measures rather than some other things that can be measured. Fantastic. Okay, another question here. Why do you think the ICP is different in animals that are co-housed versus singly housed? And is this related to the co-housed rats being more active? Activity will play a role, undoubtedly. But I think there's more things going on there. Um, so rats are like us. They, they like to interact with other animals. If they don't, they get sad, they get a bit depressed. My hypothesis here would be that there would be some interaction with um stress hormones which may actually lower intracranial pressure this is something that we are investigating but i think biological stress will play a role as well which it makes sense if, if it does transpire to be the case because you know stress affects many other aspects of physiology so why would it not affect intracranial pressure as well but that's a working hypothesis that we're working on at the moment yeah, definitely, especially in the last couple of years, being isolated. <laughs> yes, um, thankfully, our, our rats managed to avoid getting corona. So unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have a uh, manuscript telling us what uh, corona does to intracranial pressure, which would have been <laughs> nice, would have published quite well. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, it would have. Okay. And oh, just one question related to that. Are you measuring activity in these rats? We are not directly measuring activity, but we can look at the intracranial pressure trace and, and um, sort of work out if they're doing certain behaviours, because of course certain behaviours are quite stereotyped. So we can look at the trace and with a degree of certainty go, okay, are they grooming? We can sort of see when they're resting versus not resting, but we are not directly measuring behaviour. But again, that's something we would like to do in the future, which would be very interesting. But we know, you know when it's light in the room, they're less active. When it's dark in the room, they're more active. So we can make generalizations about in this period, they're less active, this period more active. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we've got time for one more question here. Okay. This question is, were additional subcortical areas analyzed for changes in GFAP? Um, so we looked at the corpus callosum and we looked ipsilaterally and contralaterally at the um, superficial area, which would have been in contact with the telemeter probe. And we saw no differences in GFAP staining. And of course, there is no indication of hydrocephalus either. And so far as we can tell, just observing the rats, they also, once they've recovered from the surgery, they behave like you've done nothing to them, but they're quite resilient animals. But in short, you only analyze two areas, but in those particular areas, we saw no indication of um, cerebral pathology. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.